Let me invite you to turn your Bibles with me to the Gospel of Luke in chapter 10. We've been looking at the parables. You remember the word parable means simply to throw alongside. These are the stories that Jesus placed alongside his teachings that have become some of the most memorable features of world literature. People who have never darkened the door of the church know what a good Samaritan is, and the reason is because of the parables of Jesus. We use words like a prodigal son in no other way except that they reference these stories, these powerful reminders that the most effective teaching usually comes in the form of a narrative, a life story that we can relate to and connect to. And perhaps none is more memorable than this one. Let me, uh, let me tell you a story before we get to the story. This is the story of a Christian radio station that invited three students from a well-known Christian college that was in the same city where they were located, invited them to perform an on-air reading of this story the well-known parable of the Good Samaritan. And as the students walked into the studio, there sitting outside the front doors was a a rather unkept-looking man, foul-smelling, lying there on a little bit of cardboard with one of those sort of raggedy-looking paper coffee cups that he jingled as they walked by. One hurried by and said they were already late. They had to get on air. A young lady came next, and she was obviously uncomfortable and maybe felt a little bit unsafe. She just mumbled something and made her way through the doors. The third turned their head and didn't even look at them face to face as they made their way past. None stopped. Little did they know that it had been a setup, obviously. The vagrant part of a scheme to test them before they read the story that would haunt them as they heard the words, of Jesus' parable of the Good Samaritan. And if you've ever wondered what your responsibility is when you see one of those heart-tugging World Vision specials or or whether you walk out of a restaurant and you're confronted by a person asking for money, you're in good company. I mean, each of us has to ask the question this parable asks, who is a neighbor? What does it mean to care for a neighbor in our life? That, that question that Jesus asked so many centuries ago is just as current as today's newspaper. And so let me make you a suggestion. Since you have heard this parable before, all of you I expect, and since there's a danger that you might assume there's nothing further that you can learn from it, I'm going to ask that, that you spend a couple of minutes, if you'd like, maybe close your eyes, And as we have Ivy read it for us, ask this question. God, what is there in this story that I've never thought of before that you wish to show me today? And Ivy, I'm going to invite you to come read for us. Today's scripture reading is from Luke chapter 10, 25 to 37. Just then, a religion scholar stood up with a question to test Jesus. Teacher, what do I need to do to get eternal life? He answered, what's written in God's law? How do you interpret it? He said, that you love the Lord your God with all your passion and prayer and muscle 
and intelligence, and that you love your neighbor as well as you do yourself. Good answer, said Jesus. Do it, and you will live. Looking for a loophole, he asked, and just how would you define neighbor? Jesus answered by telling a story. There once was a man traveling from Jerusalem to Jericho. On the way, he was attacked by robbers. They took his clothes, beat him up, and went off, leaving him half dead. Luckily, a priest was on his way down the same road, but when he saw him, he angled across to the other side. Then a Levite religious man showed up. He also avoided the injured man. A Samaritan traveling the road came on to him, and when he saw the man's condition, his heart went out to him. He gave him first aid, disinfecting and bandaging his wounds. Then he lifted him onto his donkey, led him to an inn, and made him comfortable. In the morning, he took out two silver coins and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take good care of him. If it costs any more, put it on my bill. I will pay you on my way back. What do you think? Which of these three became a neighbor to the man attacked by the robbers? The one who treated him kindly, the religion scholar responded. And Jesus said, go and do the same. This is the word of God. All my life, I've loved God. I don't claim to have done it well, but I can't remember a moment when the reality of God wasn't a part of my life. As a boy, I attended Christian summer ministries and then later summer camps. I, I learned Bible stories. I memorized scripture verses. I, I highlighted Bibles. I lost a few at the bottom of lakes on canoeing trips. I went to church activities, so all of that is a way of saying I I know something about what it means to be religious, and I know a lot of people who profess their love for God and use religious language to do it. The question that this parable asks is not, is it important to love God? We already know that. What we want to know is what does the love of God look like? To be clear, and I'll invite you to open up your Bibles again to to Luke chapter 10 and have those verses in front of you. To be clear, the lawyer in this story, the lawyer that Jesus is talking to before the parable itself unfolds, is a religious man. He'd spent his life devoted to to learning the laws of of the Hebrew Scriptures, the Old Testament. He's not unlike a professor at a Bible college or a seminary. This man is smart. And he knows the nuances of the debate about God and what the love of God is. He'd given his entire life to understanding God and the Scriptures and, and helping other people understand God and obey the teachings of the Scriptures. He's not an unbeliever. He's not a heretic. I mean, this... This is a religious blue blood, through and through. 
but I suspect he had no real interest in finding a definition for the word neighbor. What we know in the background of this parable is that that a lot of the religious leaders were involved in these lengthy public discussions with Jesus. They were testing him. They'd likely met before. This is a small community. With one being an expert in the law and the other a teacher of the law, they probably knew each other and crossed paths quite frequently. And so when the lawyer asked Jesus his question, what he's really trying to do is test Jesus' orthodoxy. Is he legit? Will he pass the test? I mean, how many litmus test questions can you think of that we use these days to judge a person's orthodoxy? That's what's going on here. You have an expert in the Hebrew law. He knew the teachings of all the rabbis. He's concerned because Jesus is developing quite a following all around Israel. And so they're set off. These are two heavyweights involved in a verbal sparring match, testing each other in this public forum. And the lawyer begins by asking this question. This teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, something you need to know about rabbis is that when they, when they are involved in debate, it's usually in the form of questions. One question, followed by another question, followed by another, followed by another. The last question wins. It's the trump card. And so beginning a debate with a question makes sense. What does the law require? And here comes Jesus' answer. It's not an answer. It's a question. What does the law say, Jesus says? And they're off and running. Note the lawyer's response. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. There you have it, right? Not on the lips of Jesus. Those words come from the lips of the teacher, the teacher of the law. He knew his scriptures. What's curious about this response, in fact, is he's not quoting Jesus, even though Jesus uses those same words in other places. He's not even quoting one particular verse from the Old Testament. What he's doing is quoting two different verses and kind of sandwiching them together, which is something that rabbis did with great fluency. The, the, goal, the great commandment and the, and the golden rule sandwiched together, one from Deuteronomy 6, The other from Leviticus 19. So why does the lawyer bring together these two verses? Maybe he heard Jesus do this before. Maybe he'd heard another rabbi do this before. But but Jesus acknowledges that he's given the right answer. Look what he says. You got it. Do this and you'll live. You've asked your question. Now you have your answer. And it looks like the debate is over. Now the lawyer has two, two possibilities here. He can walk away knowing that he'd sort of been humbled. Or he can push the debate. And he can push it in a new direction. And he chooses the second. He's not going in the direction of loving God. He assumes that he knows and Jesus knows everything that needs to be known about that. He's a professional religious person and and Jesus himself seemed quite devout. Both were orthodox. Both tried to live honorable lives. Both obviously loved God. You know, like him maybe like you, I measure my love for God with a lot of these, I don't know, self-testing kits. You know, around our house, we've been doing a lot of renovations. One of the things we're, we're doing is looking for lead paint. And we have just one of those little crayons that you draw on the wall. 
And if there's feedback, there's lead in the paint. No. Uh, We have those kind of little lead tests or litmus tests of our own faith. Think about what they might be. How often do I go to church? Uh, Do I tithe? Do I cheat on my income tax? Do I spend my nights surfing the web for pornography? It's kind of, it's not unlike the student who raises their hand in a professor's class and says, Professor, do we need to know this stuff for the exam? And if we don't need to know it, it's not important to us. We're only interested in the stuff that we need to know in order to make the grade. The more religious we become, the more we want to measure ourselves and measure other people. And so here you have the lawyer whose interest is not so much in knowing how to love, but who to love. And he wants to limit his exposure. And he is assuming, I expect, that Jesus will say what everybody said. You need to love your family and your friends. Love those who are within your tribe. And the lawyer will walk away smiling and say thanks with the affirmation that he's good and he's gained eternal life. Do you see the big movements in the story? Luke starts off with the debate. Jesus has this bright lawyer who asks how you inherit eternal life. It swings to the matter of loving God and then swings to the matter of loving neighbor and to the innocent question, who is my neighbor? We are treated to one of the great stories of all time. And so here it is. And if we want to get past our 21st century lens and see it as those who were privileged to hear it on that day when these two heavyweights were setting each other off in debate, then we need to do just a little bit of work. And I hope you'll do the work with me. The setting for this story is a lonely 17-mile road, a stretch of road from Jerusalem at 2,500 feet above sea level to Jericho at 770 feet below sea level. That's almost 3,500 feet of plunging downward on the journey from Jerusalem to Jericho. Just before Jesus was born, Herod, you remember Herod in the birth story? Herod had let go of about 40,000 workmen. And so there's unemployed people everywhere. And many of them are making their living as thieves. This road from Jerusalem to Jericho is lined by thieves. It's like walking at night through, through gangland turf or a drug-infested neighborhood. In Jesus' day, the road had a particular name. It was called the Adumin, which meant the path of blood. In the area where a canyon opens up at the very bottom near Jericho was traditionally known as, are you ready for it? The Valley of the Shadow of Death. See, when we, when we pray that, and Solomon led us beautifully in that prayer, David's not just referencing the spiritual condition of grief. He's referencing a physical location where life was ultimately in peril. The valley of the shadow of death. You're taking your life in your own hands when you walk this road alone. So we come to the victim. We don't know much about the victim. Probably a Jewish businessman, but we don't know. There's only two ways really to identify who a person is back then. One is by their language. He may have spoken one of the many languages, Hebrew, Greek, Samaritan, Latin, Phoenician, whatever the language was. The other is by their clothing. 
beautiful clothing here this morning. It says something about who you are. And it helps us identify something about where home was for you or for your ancestors. But the trouble is this man is unconscious and he's stripped naked. And so there's no way of telling who he is, where he's from, who his people are. The first person who finds him is a priest on his way from Jerusalem where he serves working at the temple. Up to 10,000 priests were employed working there, priests and Levites. Many of them lived in Jericho, and then they made their way up to Jerusalem where they'd serve for a week at a time, and then they would come back home. The priests were the upper class of Jewish society. This priest comes along, he sees the person lying in the ditch on the other side of the road. And he looks down and sees this man stripped naked, unconscious. He has no idea who he is. If the man isn't a Jew, it creates a problem. For, for, for no Jew, no devout Jew is going to touch a non-Jew. If he's dead, it creates an even bigger problem because he's a priest. And if he touches a dead body, he's going to be defiled. In Jewish law, you weren't even allowed to come within four cubits. That's six feet of a dead person, or you were considered unclean. That's why Jesus is very careful in the parable, saying that he angled his way to the other side of the road. To be unclean as a priest means that you have to go through at least a full week of ritual purification before you can do your work again. And then you have to suffer the humiliation of standing there at the eastern gate of the temple along with all the other people who had been defiled. In the end, you'll lose about four weeks' pay. So those listening to the story would have thought that the priest was not being callous, that he was being smart by crossing over. Does that make sense? And then next comes the Levite. Of the three orders of priests working the temple, this was the lowest of the three. But still, they served a huge function in that society. They were the assistants. They were there to assist the priests in all matters of life, religious life, in the temple. And like the priest ahead of him, he's bound by these same laws of of being pure and clean. And furthermore, Jesus says in the parable, he's afraid of robbers. Probably rightly so. He arrives at the scene. He knows the priest has already gone on ahead. How can he, a lesser person in the religious hierarchy, do what the priest refused to do? And besides, he has no donkey. What help can he offer? Now, those who are listening to this story would assume they knew who the third person was going to be because there were three levels in their society. The priests were at the top, the Levites were in the middle, and at the bottom were lay people, workers, peasants. And so they would assume the next person to come by would be a Jewish lay person. And here's where the sequence is disrupted. Here's where the drama takes a sharp, shocking turn. The hero should be a Jewish peasant, but it's not. Who's the hero? A Samaritan man. Who are the Samaritans? And why are they hated so much? These are the Jewish half-brothers, half-breeds from the north, born out of a mixed Jewish and Philistine ancestry. Being part Jew, they're bound to, to the Torah, to the law, the Old Testament. And like the priests or the Levites, they would have this sense of being clean and unclean. But they were considered heretics. They were loathed. I mean, think, think Jewish and Palestinian, Serb and Croat, uh, Hutu and Tutsi. They, 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 they just, their hatred went so deep that they were 
they were guilty of the most terrible crimes toward each other. A few years earlier, some Samaritans scattered bones, human remains, in the middle of the temple courtyard. It would be, be like Hindu, Hindus desecrating a Sikh temple or, or pagans sacrificing a pig in the middle of a synagogue. And so this hated Samaritan is the one who becomes the hero of the story. And that's shocking. It's like a member of the PLO becoming the hero of an Israeli play. And the Samaritan faces the same problems of contamination, and he's also he's a prime target for robbers. Thieves might respect a priest or a Levite, but who cares about a Samaritan, right? The priest and the Levite ignored the man in trouble. The man might ask himself, the Samaritan man, as he walks by, why should I help? But Jesus describes the reason why. He says he has a visceral, gut-level response to seeing this man in need. And Jesus says he had pity on him. He had pity on him. He feels deeply the wounds and the condition of this man. And even though he knows he's in this Jewish-dominated territory, this need requires action. There are higher issues at stake. And the instinct of helping someone is a God instinct. We mirror God when our lives reflect his imprint. And that instinct is a godly instinct. So notice what he does. He uses wine to disinfect the man's wounds. He uses oil as a kind of salve to to aid in the healing process. Oil and wine. Where else are those two things used? In the temple. In worship. Back in Jerusalem. Not only is Jesus throwing a curveball, a surprise, when he makes the hero of the story a Samaritan, but here, the the, the very instruments that he uses to bring healing to this man are the instruments of worship, the instruments of the priest and the Levite. Those who, who understood the love of God as something that existed only in the temple, where oil and wine were used in sacrifice and worship, we're about to be shown up by the Samaritan, loathed by everyone who uses those same instruments to bring healing in the world. Will there be a connection to what happens in worship on Sunday and what happens in the world on Monday? That's what the story is teasing out. Our small group worked their way through this story on Thursday night. And I... I mentioned to them, and I'll, I'll say it quite candidly, this, this parable haunts me. It haunts me because as I read the story, I know that the easiest connection for me to make is with the priest or with the Levite. They were, in the best sense of the word, religious professionals, and I guess, I guess so am I, at least in this sense. I've, I've given my life to serve in the church, and in turn... You provide for my life and the needs of my family. I make my, my gainful income through religious work. And maybe we don't use oil and wine, but the oil and wine of my life, the grace of God that I don't deserve, the, the mercy of God, God giving me what I don't deserve and not giving me what I do. These things I carry with me in worship, but what haunts me is the question of, of how much I carry them out of worship and into the week. 
Sheldon and I laughed a little bit when, when we hung up on somebody who called the church asking for help. And, and while many, many times we've said yes to this man, this time we said no. And then I realized I had to go back into my office and work up the story of the Good Samaritan. What just happened here, Lord? The story haunts me. Because the big question, the question that I carry with me, the question that, that, that really the story intends to land right in our laps is this. If loving God whom I can't see involves loving a neighbor who I can see, what does it cost me to really see them? What does it cost? What is the cost in being a neighbor? We know that with God, nothing is without cost. And while God's grace may be free, it obligates those of us who take Jesus as the name and the center of our life. We are Jesus people. But what does that cost? What is being a neighbor involved? Surely it must mean more than just waving hi to Rob as he and I pull out of our driveway early in the morning. Or helping Bernie next to our shovel his sidewalks because he's recovering from a heart attack. Look what it costs the Samaritan. It was inconvenient. He had to interrupt his life, his schedule. In the most inhospitable of places, in the middle of a desert, he's vulnerable. An area infested with robbers. And by stopping, he places his own life at peril. There's a possibility of retaliation. That's one of the key values throughout the Middle East. There's no inn nearby, no hospice or hospital. He takes the man with him into Jericho, where there's a very high probability that that man's family will recognize him. And what are they going to assume when a Samaritan brings him in beaten and bloodied on the back of a donkey? You did it. It's kind of like a Syrian or an Afghan man carrying a mutilated Canadian soldier into a Jewish base in the Becca Valley of Lebanon. And then it, it doesn't just hit his, his sense of convenience or a sense of safety. It hits his wallet. He makes no attempt to be anonymous. He tells the innkeeper, not only will he pay now, he'll return later and he'll pay again if the cost is more. There's, there's a personal price. The price isn't just money. Like the Jews, he too, by touching this foreign body, potentially a dead body, would be defiled under their understanding of the law. And he'd have to go through that elaborate ritual process of being cleansed, which would cost him income, cost him his business, would be time-consuming and arduous. So the question of loving God, Luke, in the, in the story, the way he recorded it, moves us forward from Jesus' final question, which of these three do you think was a neighbor, to the deeper question? Because the answer to that question is obvious. Obviously, the third one. But the bigger question is this. If we can't love our neighbor, how can we love God? It's in loving our neighbor that we learn what the love of God looks like. I want you to notice one more thing here. And it's where Jesus sets the parable. Between Jerusalem and Jericho. What do they represent? Jerusalem is the center of the religious life of the people of Israel. The holiest spot in the world, right there in the temple. All the highest forms of worship were experienced and expressed there. There was no more sacred place 
on God's good earth than Jerusalem. What about Jericho? Jericho was the city that Joshua cursed. When God's people first entered the promised land, listen to what the Scriptures say. Joshua 6, Cursed before the Lord is the man who undertakes to rebuild this city of Jericho. And yet Jesus connects these two cities, Jerusalem and Jericho. As a way of saying, I think, that in this world there is no distinction between the divine and the profane, the sacred and the secular, between holy and worldly. It's all the Lord's. You can't worship in Jerusalem and then walk to Jericho as if what you did there has no connection to where you live here. God asks us, calls us, to offer the wine of forgiveness and the oil of healing, not just in worship, but in life. In effect, in loving God who we can't see, we'll be able to love our neighbor who we can see. And in loving our neighbor who we can see, we're entering into a way of loving God who we cannot see. And here's here's the potential disconnect. This is where it all falls apart. If I fail to do so, if I fail to help, one of the things I'm saying implicitly is that, is that God doesn't care about that person. Because God's way of loving neighbors seems to be by placing people who will live out that love in tangible ways. Placing them right alongside. If I profess to love God and I don't show it, as the story points out, that what I'm really saying is that I haven't learned what love looks like But more than that, other people are going to miss out on learning it as well. And worse, as I continue to blind my eyes and and deafen my ears and harden my heart, I drift away from God and I lose the ability to really hear His voice. God speaks to me powerfully through the neighbor that He wants me to love. The provocative part of the story, of course, is that the the most religiously orthodox one is the one who's actually seen as a theological deviant. And yet he's the one who's learned to love God more. Let me challenge you to do this this week. Draw a straight line. Draw a line this week between your real love for God and the way that you really treat someone in need. Loving God is no more complicated than that. Today and tomorrow and any day this week, Ask who it is that God has placed in your life as a neighbor. And what you do in that moment describes how you love God more than anything else. In loving God, in loving neighbor, the fusion of the two is the real test of belief. In loving my neighbor whom I can see, I learn to love God whom I can't. And in loving God whom I can't see, I learn to love my neighbor whom I can. It's not rocket science, is it? Let me pray for us. Lord, these words are easy to speak and so hard to live. Maybe easy to hear, but 
but they're hard to enact. So God help us to move beyond just listening to living, beyond just hearing to applying. Give us the opportunity through the course of the coming days to test out what it really means to love You in ways that are tangible and practical and real. Jesus, we invite You to enter into those hollow places in our lives, those places that feel empty, and fill them not just with the majesty of Your presence, but with the opportunity to live and love and serve another person and to find meaning and purpose there. And we'll give You praise. And we'll give You honor. And we'll give You glory. Because we are privileged to bear Your name. But in Christ's name we pray.